Welcome to podcast number 176 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is August 30th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Matt Cost. Matt was a history major at Trinity College. He owned a mystery bookstore, a video store, and a gym before serving a 10-year sentence as a junior high school teacher. In 2014, he was released and began writing. And that's what he does. He writes histories and mysteries. Love in the Time of Hate was his third historical by and Joshua Chamberlain and the Civil War at Every Hazard was published in 2015, and I Am Cuba was published in 2020. He has also published the Mainly Mystery series, including Mainly Power, Mainly Fear, Mainly Money, and the fourth book in the series, Mainly Angst, was published in January of 2022. He has begun the Clay Wolf Port Essex Trap series with Wolf Trap, Mind Trap, Mouse Trap, Cosmic Trap will be coming out in fall of 2022. Matt now lives in Brunswick, Maine with his wife and their four grown children. A chocolate lab and a basset hound round out the mix. He now spends his time at a computer writing. This is a fun interview, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong, small-town cozy mystery series. To learn more go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I certainly appreciate it. Uh, A future guest, uh, B.J. Mangani, Mangani? Manyani. Manyani. Uh, I had never said that out loud before, so I'm glad that you helped <laughs> me with that. Uh, said that, hey, I should uh, contact you, and you jumped line. And <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and uh, you told me that you would listen to uh, my uh, my uh, podcast with uh, Bruce Coffin and uh, Dale Phillips, uh, both, uh, I believe, one's Mainer and one had been a Mainer. So, and here you are in uh, beautiful Brunswick, Maine. So how's the weather up there today, sir? Oh, it's a little cloudy with some rain in the air, but not coming down yet. Rain, that's a that's a hopeful thing for Maine, you know, so at this time of year, because you guys can still get blasted with some uh, nor'easters, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, we're not too far away from ice and snow coming out of the sky, but I think it'll be rain. Okay. <laughs> On the coast today in um, Milford, Connecticut, it's, uh, as we record this, Thursday, April the 7th, it's a rotten rainy day. I can't tell you any other thing about it. There's nothing nothing redeeming about this day other than my eyes opened up this morning and I was able to stand upright. Matt, it was we had a chat before we started the conversation today. We, we chatted earlier this week when I was out walking my dog on a nicer day. Really talked a lot and I thought this was going to be a great interview, but I didn't get to talk much about your career other than your writing and how you got and then how you got into your writing. So if you want to take a little bit of time to tell us about what you do in your other parts of your life and then how your writing uh, got more involved. Let's get started there. 
Yeah, well, certainly uh, I always wanted to be a writer. So right out of college, back in 1990, I wrote my first historical novel. Actually, I'd gone to college, John, in Hartford, Connecticut at Trinity College. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, and a professor there got me really excited about Latin American history, and I wrote a historical novel about Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. Hmm. And upon completing that, I realized three things. One, I really wasn't a very good writer. Two, I needed to do a lot more research. And three, I really needed to visit Cuba before I uh, did a rewrite. And that took uh, 25 years before I got to Cuba and I finished that historical novel. I'd written another one about Joshua Chamberlain on the way. And uh, I found a publisher for the historical novel. And about that time, I went to Thriller Fest, I believe it was, where I perhaps heard you speak a few years back. And I uh, got very excited to write mysteries. How about that? That's great. Now, Chamberlain, because uh, I'm a Civil War buff, uh, was a, a deciding general, I believe, at Gettysburg, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Turned the tides of war at Gettysburg when he led a turning wheel charge off Little Round Top. Mm-hmm. Help me understand what a turning wheel charge is, because I think I remember, but if you know it, tell me. So, out of ammunition, kind of beaten down, uh holding the left flank of the entire Union Army and told to hold that at every hazard, Chamberlain is about to give in and have the entire Union Army rolled up on the side. And he comes up with the plan to have a turning wheel charge, which the right side of the line pretty much marches in place while the left side of the line is running at full speed and the middle of the line is somewhere in the middle. So like the, you know, hand of a clock turning, Okay, uh, it's going to turn upon that base and sweep in this turning wheel or turning clock uh, charge and surprises, you know, regiments that are attacking from Alabama and Texas and uh, breaks the attack and turns the tide of the war right there. That is amazing stuff. And for uh, some people that don't understand it, we're talking about uh, single shot uh, muskets and bayonets. So yeah, yep. not, give, give them the steel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not exactly um, some of the uh, antiseptic uh, drone activity that we know about these days, <laughs> but uh, for sure. And when you mentioned it, I, I knew the reference, but I wanted to help our readers and uh, listeners understand it as well. So thank you. And you got to visit Cuba, too. What kind of passport or or visa did that require? I went in 2016, and you still, it was was wide open then. So I didn't need any special. I could have gone earlier than that if I'd had the opportunity in life, because as doing research for a book, it would have allowed me to go. But in 2016, it was opened wide open. I actually had flown into Havana. And then we were flying to Santiago, but we got bumped from our plane because that was the day Fidel Castro was being buried in the Santa Iphigenia uh, Cemetery there. And so we had to get there the next day and go, go see his burial ground. I took okay. my son with me and we uh, spent two weeks traveling and following the uh, the Revolutionary War Trail that Fidel Castro and his guerrillas uh, followed. Wow. <laughs> 
Now, the size of Cuba, just give me a, a reference point in terms of, I mean, I know it's off the you know, coast of Florida and, you know, you can't see it on a clear day, but how, how large is uh, Cuba? And did you do that by foot or did you do it by uh, other means of transportation? It's about the size of Maine. No the entire kidding. country of Cuba is about the size of Maine, uh, 60 miles off the, you know, from Key West. Right. And, uh, but still too big to do by foot. Yeah. <laughs> now that you, now that you tell me it's Maine, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I, so I did we, not know. I mean, I've, I've always seen it on the map. I just never did a, a reference on that. I apologize. My knowledge of Maine is that it's, uh, it's, it's, it's more than half the size of the other five states that we call New England. So yeah, it's, it's a big, big, you know, pretty big uh, area. I didn't mean to interrupt twice, but I did uh, for <laughs> clarification once about Chamberlain and once about Cuba. So anyway, continue. Uh, so yeah, m- moving along and when, you know, getting ourselves towards the mysteries that I write, the I am Cuba about Fidel Castro and the Cuban revolution was published by Encircle publications in March of 2020, right at the onset of pandemic mm-hmm. coming in. I had very good success with them. And and like I said, I decided to move over to mysteries. I actually had a Segway novel in there from historical to mystery, where I did a book about New Orleans after the Civil War. And my character is uh, tracking a serial killer before they're known as serial killers in all the turmoil that was Reconstruction New Orleans in, you know, the 1870s. And that book segued me into writing my mainly mystery series. And that's about the protagonist, Goff Langdon, is a mystery bookstore owner slash private investigator in the town of Brunswick, Maine. And there was a little basis for truth in that because back in the 1990s, I did own a mystery bookstore in Brunswick, Maine called <laughs> the, Co- <laughs> the, the, the Goff Langdon is not me, but the, the, the bookstore was real. And he does have a chocolate Labrador, which was named after my chocolate Labrador as well. So they're, they're, the bookstore and the, uh, the, the dog are the real. The rest is fiction. <laughs> that first book. Um, mainly power was selected by the Maine Humanities Council as the fiction book of the year up here in Maine. And uh, that kind of got me off and running real well. And I wrote three more in that series. But halfway through, I started uh, intermingling. And I started another series uh, with my protagonist, who is a little more hard-bitten of a PI, a little less amateur a former Boston homicide detective who's moved to the fictional town of Port Essex in Maine mm-hmm. and hung out his shingle. And so just in uh, um, April, the third book in that series is coming out, Mousetrap. And nice. in December, the fourth book in that series will be out, which will be called Cosmic Trap. So you've kind of given me a brief snippet of your two protagonists from both of your series. Can you just kind of do a little deeper dive on both of those guys and, and let me know what make them tick? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, Goff Langdon is a private investigator and a mystery bookstore owner, which were two passions of his. Um, again, probably following my own career or my own path. He uh, grew up reading the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew books and moved on to Elmore Leonard and things like that. 
and those are things, books that I enjoyed. And that gave him a desire to become a private investigator. And luckily for him, his kind of baddie Aunt Zelda leaves him an inheritance that allows him to also open a mystery bookstore, which is another passion of his. And neither one of those really can provide a living in uh, Brunswick, Maine, perhaps down in Connecticut they can, but, uh, but put them together and he is able to make a living off his bookstore and off of his uh, private investigative work, which is mostly insurance fraud and things like that. But every once in a while, a more exciting case comes along. Um, and the first one that won the main humanities award is uh, investigating a nuclear power plant that might have some issues with it, might be a cause for attack. He's not really sure what, but there's a mysterious death of the head of security there that is ruled a suicide, but the widow doesn't believe that is true. And hires him? And hires him to investigate that death to prove that her husband had not committed suicide, but was rather murdered. And as he starts to dig further and further in, he realizes that there's all sorts of people that might want to, you know, get their fingers into uh, this nuclear power plant. The idea for this was burned actually when I was at a bar having a beer and I was talking to a clam digger who was sitting next to me. And he started talking about how easy it was to get into Maine Yankee, which the nuclear power plant in Maine back in the, you know, 80s and 90s before it was closed down. And he said, you know, he used to go clamming right up on the shores, right to the doors of this nuclear power plant. And I got to thinking, you know, our nuclear silos have the utmost protection, but these power plants that have nuclear power have very little protection. So we start digging into it and realizing that there's all sorts of people that might want to affect what is going on there, whether it be wealthy landowners or even environmentalists or others who... uh could be guilty uh, foul play there. Now, but this wasn't his. Uh, this wasn't Dolph's uh, first uh, uh, ride on the rodeo. He had some investigative experience before being faced with this situation. He did. He he'd been a PI for a couple years, but okay. as I said, it was you know the insurance fraud, you know workman's compensation claims, things yep. like that. No, that that's the typical bread and butter of a lot of PIs getting started for sure. And I was going to say while you're saying that it was telling me the story. It wasn't your basic uh, cheating spouse case either. He was probably punching above his weight a little bit when he took on this case. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, that's what makes it fun, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I you do know, too. so, you know, that's, he, he's a little more of an amateur and, you know, kind of bounces around and makes a lot of mistakes and things and has a colorful cast of friends who help him along the way, as well as the coffee dog, which as we get into book four, uh, is, has a successor who is no longer the coffee dog, but now is just named dog. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a, I, I, I write that in a sort of Carl Hyacin, Elmore Leonard sort of way. The book has also, Langdon has been compared by reviewers to Spencer, Robert Parker Spencer. Nice. Um, so those are the sort of things that shape that book, I think, and shape Langdon and who he is. Now, um, did you bring those to a publisher or did you do those yourself? I brought those to my publisher at Encircle who had agreed to. I'd actually written the first couple of them and they were on a dusty bottom shelf while I 
continue to work on my writing skills. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, kind of the, the lineage is that I self-published Joshua Chamberlain in 2015 because I said, hey, I'm finally getting kind of good at this craft some 25 years into it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I went on and, you know, I was able to visit Cuba and come back and redo that book and bring that and find a publisher. And when I did that, I said, hey, I've got these old dusty mysteries. If I, you know, give them a good once over and remaster them, would you take a look at them? And they said, sure, they'd be happy to do that. So I kind of remastered and kind of tore them apart and broke them down and made them better and brought them back to them. And they said, great. And so they went ahead and published those in uh, the fall of 2020. And uh, I, kept going from there. Well, and, and to your credit, you went back over them again and gave them a working over again now with your your better writing skills. That's the word I'm going to use, better writing skills. <laughs> and uh, evidently a group of judges uh, thought that was uh, good stuff for your for your debut of the mystery and and gave you that award. Uh obviously, uh the hard work from in the, in the intervening years between when you first wrote them and until the time uh, your publisher accepted their, the, them as uh, rough draft manuscripts, you'd done, some, uh, you'd done some homework in that time period. How much time uh, went, went between them, would you say? You know, I'd, I'd written those first two books, Mainly Power and Mainly Fear, back around 2000, and I published them 20 years later. Wow. I constantly worked on my craft of writing in that time period. Yep. Um, but, you know, at the same time, life gets busy with other things. Um, I own several businesses, like I told you, the Coffee Dog Mystery Bookstore. But I also owned a gym and a video store through the 90s. Had a bunch of kids. Coached them in every sport imaginable. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, no, I know. That- <laughs> yep. I've got, uh, you know, the, I've got the little coaching trophies myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine are in a box in the basement still somewhere, but <laughs> I, I've got a basketball with a whole team's name on it. That's kind of fun to have. Yeah, that is cool. <laughs> so, but I know I, I get that and I, I get you're an entrepreneur and that you understand that when you self-pubbed the Chamberlain book, you know, you had a little bit of uh, marketing savvy and by 15, uh, the self-publishing um, landscape had become a little bit more readable and there were some trailblazers out there that had done some things prior so that you could at least uh, try to emulate some best practices would that be fair to say yeah it's certainly not like it is today you know there's there's a whole industry of self-published authors out there Mm -hmm. they connect themselves to each other so i was still at sort of the beginning stages of uh going through what was then called create space with amazon to self-publish that book. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of exciting is uh, Encircle Publications. My publisher is going to reissue that book under their name uh, in August. So, Matt, I want to hear a little bit more about your second private investigator now. Got to thinking that it might be interesting to move outside of my hometown, the real town of Brunswick, Maine, and uh, enter into a fictional town. So I created the town of Port Essex on the coast of Maine for my second uh, PI to be in. And he'd grown up in this small coastal Maine town. 
And, you know, he was the typical football quarterback hero and his best friend was the running back. And then they went separate directions for the next 10 or 12 years of their life. And he was a Boston homicide detective. But when his grandfather has a fall, his grandfather who raised him uh, has a fall, he realizes that he's not getting any younger. He's also become a little jaded with the scene down in Boston as a homicide detective. So he decides to retire from the force, move back to Port Essex, Maine, to help care for his aging grandfather, and opens a PI business there. So Clay Wolf is a little bit more of a serious and less amateurish than Goff Langdon, uh, where Goff Langdon is sort of slacker and laid back and casual and dress and speech. Clay Wolf is kind of a little snazzy dresser and a little bit different than that, and likes to look good. And much like Clay Wolf, though, he's caught up into some of the more mundane uh, cases of PI work until he is approached by the grandmother of a child who has died from a heroin overdose. Hmm. It's always kind of a gritty prospect to start a book on, but it was based on some uh, news article I actually read of a mother in Maine who, to get her teething baby to stop crying, would rub the heroin residue from the baggies on her gums. Oh, my. And I thought, you know, that is so horrible that it has to be the start of a book. (laughs) And so I started the book with that. And the grandmother uh, knows, you know, who's responsible, her daughter is. uh, But she wants to find who supplied these drugs. And so... Clay Wolf digs into that and discovers that in small town Maine, Port Essex, there is a huge heroin ring where people are smuggling heroin through lobster traps Hmm. and uh, circulating that throughout all of New England. Uh, So he gets caught up in his first big case. Again, there's a cast of supporting characters. Um, and he, you know, chases the bad guys and tries to get to the bottom of it. This series a l- little bit more of a thriller and a little less of a mystery. A mystery being where you kind of are given a crime and trying to untangle what happened, where a thriller kind of races to prevent something from happening. Mm-hmm. No, I get that. No, and if I don't add a little thriller element to some of my uh, some of my books. Um, it's it's not because I, I lack the imagination <laughs> and uh, I enjoy doing so, quite frankly. Uh, the ticking clock or uh, uh, or something to that nature where if, if uh, the, the, the protagonist must prevent something from happening bad, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, and, and when did you uh, start writing those and uh, how have you progressed? Um. I suppose I started writing those in 2021, maybe the end of 2020. Okay. And uh, the first one came out last June, uh, which was Wolf Trap, which is kind of kicks the whole thing off. That's the heroin being smuggled through lobster traps. Mm-hmm. And then I had the second one come out in October, which was Mind Trap. And then this one, Clay Wolf. 
uh, discovers that right there in his hometown of Port Essex is a doomsday cult operating. Mm. And uh, he gets pulled into that case. Um, and Title for that yet? Uh, that was Mind Trap. So okay. that's the second book. It came out last October. And then coming out April 13th is Mousetrap, which gets into genome editing. Okay. There's, uh, which was really fascinating to dig into. I'm sure you probably have similar experiences, but it's fun to, you know, engage with a topic and learn more about it, whether it be cults or the ties between big pharma and heroin, or in this case, genome editing. Up here in Maine, we have a laboratory where they do a lot of genome editing testing on rats. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of changed the name and moved the place to Port Essex. And it turns out that they're, you know, really pretty heavily engaged in genome editing with these rats, or mice, actually. And uh, perhaps there is a secret lab where more than just mice are being done. And so... Uh, that whole case brings him in. And then in December of 2022, uh, the fourth book in that series, Cosmic Trap, will come out. Nice. And that, that gets into the whole uh, phenomena that we've had of unexplained aerial phenomena that has sprung up, UAPs, which is the new terminology for UFOs. And uh, actually, last August, the Congress created a task force to investigate these UAPs. So we discover a few of them flying over Port Essex. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, it seems like the uh, Bermuda Triangle of uh, strange and odd events. Yeah, yeah I, I'm not really sure how far I can go with the Port Essex uh, series if all these crazy things keep happening there. Well, you got to take Clay on the road. Yeah, you know? yeah he yeah. might have to go down to Connecticut. Right. He has to go visit his uh, brother or his uh, wife's sister or whatever and get embroiled in something in Glastonbury or, <laughs> you know, Milford for all intents and yeah. purposes. I yeah. know Milford well enough. I can give you the, the research on that. It's interesting. I, I like the way you take the what if. The what if this. Well, throw in some obstacles, throw in some, uh, throw in some stakes. And I'm not talking about sirloins or ribeyes, <laughs> you know, uh, throw in some, uh, and, and then before you know it, you start to, an idea starts to percolate, you know, that's, that's interesting. Now, do you share these, uh, these original ideas with your loved ones and say, Hey, I'm thinking of writing a book about blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. I'll probably toss it around with my wife sometimes beforehand and, okay. you know, get, get her feedback on that. And then as I progress, actually, my, my father lives in an in-law apartment above my garage. Okay. So every time I finish a chapter on that first draft of which will turn out to be many more drafts, I will, uh, put it with the newspaper after I read the newspaper and I'll throw the newspaper and the chapter up on his deck and he will read it and give me feedback, you know, <laughs> not so much the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, but more right. like, I have no idea what you're talking about here, or I don't understand this part. Or, okay. So it's on a more of a higher level. He's a reader's yeah. reader. Yeah. All right. And that's, he's acting as a reader and he's not a line editor or a proofreader or anything like that. And it's funny that you get that kind of feedback and, and that, uh, it, it does help your work. But earlier I said one of many drafts. Um, I've heard other writers say that. And to me, I 
honestly, I, I, I sit down on a Monday with, with a scene, any Monday, any day of the week. I, I sit down, I do the scene. The next day, I read it for readability and to see if there might be a better way to write some of the uh, the sentences. Then I pretty much hand it to my editor and my editor makes uh, developmental or structural edit suggestions. I make those revisions, I send it back and then I get copy edits and I get proofreads reads. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm pretty much a stranger to the, the multi-layered revisioning process or the drafting process. Can you just t- tell me a little bit about that from your standpoint, what that means to you? And are, are there different stages or steps that you follow or is it just until you feel that it's right? Um, absolutely. And, you know, the one thing I've discovered is that every writer has their own way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I never quite understood how you can take a class or do something like that because you've got to do what works for you. Right. And, I, and I write really fast and furious. You know, I just sit down and write. I've been writing three or four books a year for the last few years mm-hmm. and uh, kind of just popping them out one after another. But when I'm done that first draft, which is generally I shoot for about 80,000 words, knowing that I'm going to add another 8,000 words. Okay. Uh, on, on average. On average, you know, so roughly. But that's kind of my goal is to, you know, end up with a book that's 88,000 words long. I, You know, my research at some point suggested that that was a good length for a book. So that's what I shoot for. And it's, you know, sometimes short, sometimes long. But when I finish that first draft, I will then go through and do two edits of my own. During those edits, you know, it's uh, a lot of, is everything making sense? Does everything tie together? Did I change somebody's, you know, hair color at the end of the book from the beginning of the book? You know, are the plot threads tying together? You know, is it making sense? You know, so I'll read through real fast one time to just kind of, so I can get a feel for all of that stuff. And then I'll go through and I'll do a second edit where I'm basically cleaning up for the housekeeper which is the editor that I pay to do my edits. And he will do three rounds of edits. The first is a global edit and then a copy edit and then a line edit. And at that point, I'm five edits in and I send it to the publisher who will do their edits on it, which usually by the time I get it to the publisher uh, in pretty darn good shape and there isn't that much that they suggest or want to change. And... That will lead to an arc, and before the final copy, there will be one more spit shine polish edit by the publisher to make sure that you know you didn't write form instead of from or something like that mm-hmm. that kind of slipped through. So all done and told, there are seven edits that I do on each book. Well, that is, and I guess I could call my one self edit after. The first, you know, read of the scene, then uh, the developmental edit, the copy edit, and then also the proofread being done at the same time. So lead side things. So maybe there's there's uh, there's also a time when I do a before I submit it to my editor. That's another thing I should say before I submit it to my editor. I will run the whole draft through Pro Writing Aid, and yeah. that gives me a lot of those frums and fours, uh, frums and forms and double spaces and extra punctuation spots and whether my uh, quote marks are straight or curly, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, So I guess there's maybe a little bit more than that than, than I'm giving myself credit for. But it sounds like you have a replicable uh, model from which you are making sure that the quality of your writing goes from the creative idea 
to your editor's doorstep with some uh, intentionality around making sure that's the best draft that you can possibly give them. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and I have fallen into the rhythm of it now. That's what I'm doing is writing full time. So I don't have other things, careers, jobs interfering with that time. And, you know, when I finish a draft and start editing, I almost immediately begin writing another book. And if you have three or four books coming out a year, you almost always have a book out recently that you're promoting. So I really like the mix of those three things in my daily day. Instead of just writing for 10 hours, you know, I'll, you know, might write for three, four, five hours, and then I might do a couple hours of editing and a couple hours of marketing so that it kind of balances out. You get to do a little bit of it all. Yeah, I mean, I know in my world, it's opposite. I have to get all the um, the other stuff done before lunch so that I am free after lunch to write until dinner time. And it's, it's forcing me to be efficient with my time uh, in the morning slot so that I get those things done that I plan to get done. And then... It's the reward is being able to write in the afternoon. When I, I can't give myself the reward is when I haven't been efficient in the morning or something comes up that uh, was not planned for and is urgent, must be dealt with. Then it cuts into my afternoon time. And uh, I always grumble when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, I don't know about you, but I leave my cell phone in the car when I go play a round of golf. And two people, my wife and my son, both know that I'm at a certain golf course at a certain day. And if, and if, the, and if the, uh, the range, or not the range guy, but the uh, greens man has to come out on a cart and find me, well, that's, the, that, that's what he needs to do. You know? But I'm not going to uh, be taking cell phone calls while I'm golfing. Similar is that I'm not going to be interrupted while I'm writing. I just want to write. I want to be in that headspace. I'm not looking at cat videos on TikTok. You know, I'm just worried about, not worried. I'm just trying to stay in that flow state as much as I can. So maybe it's a little different for me than for you. But it's. I think what we're saying the same thing is that we make time for our writing and do what we need to do to keep all the other balls in the air. Is that fair? Uh, absolutely. You know, once again, going back to, you know, every writer, I think, has their own method of doing things. And there, you know, our examples are we're a little bit opposite. My mm-hmm. most creative time is first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee in hand. So that's when I like to write. Okay. And, you know, I get less creative throughout the day. So that's when I, you know, take care of business more often. Mm-hmm. And that's not a creative process for me so you know we're just uh, opposite ends but yeah doing and, the same thing yeah our energy what's the word I'm looking at? how we expend our energy and how the kind of energy we want to expend is is done when it's best when the best time is for it like i said could i do my writing in the morning yeah probably but then i'd be dreading doing all that other crap in the afternoon <laughs> so i'd rather get you know i'd rather have my medicine in the morning and then be able to have my uh, cake in the afternoon if i can be so bold as to say it that way what else you got going on matt um i've decided to write a new mystery series oh really I- I'm blending my histories and mysteries into a book, and I have finished editing that all the way through, and it is with the publisher and will be coming out in April of 
2023. Wow. A year from now. A year from now. That has a PI as well, but this time I've moved the PI to Brooklyn and I've moved the time period to 1923. Wow. So it's a a historical PI mystery um, starring Eight Bellow, who is my PI, and he is hired to find a missing girl, the daughter of a wealthy German uh, businessman in the borough of uh, Bushwick in Brooklyn. Okay. Well, the borough of Brooklyn. The, uh, the neighborhood, I yeah, guess the neighborhood, it is. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to tell me, how did that all come about? And how, how did that thinking? That's kind of interesting because I got to a place where, uh, you know, as I said, I love histories and mysteries. And I said, ah, let's go ahead and try and, you know, put one together. And I did that a little bit with a book called Love and a Time of Hate, as I talked about, set in New Orleans after the Civil War. Okay. But now with this one, I wanted to take the PI and I wanted to set it in a time period that was really fascinating to me. And as I dug more and more into, you know, the 1920s as a history major, major at Trinity College, and I love history, I realized what a fun era that was and how many geniuses and so many talented people existed in New York City, in Brooklyn at that time, between the jazz age and prohibition and everything that's going on. So, you know, Apello will, you know, run into Dorothy Parker at the Algonquin Hotel and the round table that she's famous for, and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald before he writes The Great Gatsby. Uh, <laughs> We'll see Coleman Hawkins, Hawkins up in uh, Harlem and uh, Babe Ruth and, you know, all of these legendary figures of that time period. Right. On top of all of that, I chose Brooklyn because my daughter lives there. Oh, okay. Said, hey, if I'm going to go research, you know, I can go visit my daughter and do research and, you know, uh, make it a tax write-off. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I know. I, I, I've done that with uh, uh, almost all of my books where I've had to do uh, go to a, a location other than you know, Southern Connecticut where I only based one. The rest of them were all, all required research and research trips. And you're right. It's tax deductible because you can point to the t- tax man somewhere in your novel a scene. And maybe there's a photograph or a sketch of that scene from your notes for that for that case, uh, for that uh, book. And uh, the direct correlation between what you were doing there and uh, how it appears on the printed page. At least I, I make sure I do that. So but that's interesting. And you were able to do that. So so, uh, you know, 95 from uh, your neck of the woods all the way down to uh, Brooklyn, then I take it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I'll I'll be headed down that way in a few weeks, actually. Oh, nice. Last thing I guess I, I should ask, uh, Matt, is how can people reach you? And Oh, no, I forgot to ask you. Who do you read these days? Who do you like to read? You know, I as I told you, you know, earlier, the Hardy Boys started me off and the Nancy Drew and progressed into Carl Hyacinth and Elmore Leonard and Robert Parker. But for the last couple of years, I've become very enmeshed in the main writing scene. Because there's a huge main mystery writing scene, uh, two of them that you had on your uh, program, 
Dale Phillips and Bruce Coffin. I've read their right. books. Right. And, you know, they're both based in Maine. And Bruce is from Maine, as Dale originally was. But then I, on top of that, I've become very close to a lot of my publishers, authors. I've been reading a lot of books by B.J. Magnani, who okay. is who, you know, put us together. And S. Lee Manning and Kevin St. Jar. And, uh you know, a whole host of people, Kurt Wendell Bowe. And so almost all of my reading has been either of my publisher or of main authors that I know over the last couple of years. So it's, a, I'm kind of looking forward to a time where I can branch back out and, you know, get into some of the Michael Connolly's again and mm-hmm. uh, some of these other uh, large authors that, that I've enjoyed in the past. But I, I'm really enjoying doing the local thing right now and you're supporting and but you're also interested in seeing what they do you know and, it, and it's looking at their craft and trying to figure out how they do things and and how not not to swipe or borrow but to basically say oh that's really neat how they did that and to think of ways that you can do that yourself without you know of course like i said stealing there's an affinity for the local writers i, I came out of uh crime bake in uh i guess that was late october and have spent, I guess, the last three months reading a lot of the people that I met there just for that reason. Hey, I met you. I like your stuff. You know, I want to read more. And gee, that's really neat how you did that. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, for yeah, sure. And, and, you know, Marsha O'Shea is at the top of my list now. So okay. I'm going I'm to get on that. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. She's kind of favorite to me. But uh, <laughs> uh so, Matt, uh, as important as it always is, uh, when we get to this time of the show, how is it that people can reach out to you? Um, you know, certainly the first step in all my information is on there is my website, which is the www.mattcost.net. Mm-hmm. So if you pretty much remember my name, you can, you know, find out stuff about me. Well, that's fantastic. I certainly appreciate you coming on the show today, Matt. I thank you. And uh, I do appreciate you coming on today. Thank you. Well, thank you, John. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, it's good to get to know you a little bit. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening. I hope I've earned your interest in your time. Our guest next week is Boston-based author Dave Zelterman. Dave's crime and thriller novels include Small Crimes, Pariah, Killer, Outsourced, The Caretaker of Lauren Field, A Killer's Essence, Monster, and The Boy Who Killed Demons. He's been published in seven languages. Small Crimes has been made into a Netflix film. The Caretaker of Lauren Field and Outsourced are currently in film development. His books have been picked by NPR, The Washington Post, American Library Association, Booklist, and WBUR as Best Novels of the Year, and his Julius Katz Mysteries have won a Seamus, Derringer, and two Ellery Queen Reader's Choice Awards. Dave also writes the Morris Brick thrillers, Deranged, Crazed, Malicious, Cruel, Unleashed, under the pseudonym Jacob Stone. It is my pleasure to bring on David to the podcast next week. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N, 
HODA.com and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. 